episode five, Adventure of a Lifetime. Grace and peace to you, friends. There are so many things to teach young toddlers, like helping them learn to walk and talk, but you will never ever have to teach a toddler how to fight. They will instinctually not share their toys, and they don't even have to be taught to bite the child that took it. Nope, no instruction required. How about my tween? He needs no instruction on constructing an argument for anything. It's almost like it comes naturally. How about when they get jealous when another child is getting attention or a treat? Oh my, I guess that only happens at my house. And what about if the toddler is tired and cranky? You don't even have to teach the toddlers to throw themselves on the ground and hit their heads on the hard floor for added emphasis. Don't have to teach them to get your attention. Quite the contrary, right? You have to teach toddlers how to live in a social environment, how they grow and learn, not to scream at the top of their lungs. The Bible talks about our flesh, our sin nature, and I think our flesh is very much like a toddler. The self-help movement has a lot to say about it. With different terminology, they might say it's our primal brain. We survived the caveman days by avoiding pain and pursuing pleasure because, of course, the universe has our back. When my husband gets the munchies in the evening and craves apple pie, mm -mm, it's like all of your senses kick in. You can smell the smells and practically feel the warmness in your mouth. No, it's not likely his body is craving some missing nutrients. The universe does not, in fact, have my back if it wants me to gain 100 pounds on yummy apple pie goodness. What about me after a long day of pushing my schedule around, fighting fires, keeping myself from saying something too blunt and taking two steps back in my relationships? My body craves release, rest, a little treat, maybe, I don't know, a glass of wine that turns into something more. Food and alcohol are easy targets, but there could be other cravings too. Overworking is right up there for me too, modeled as a good thing by my dad, by my grandparents. These cravings sometimes feel like boss baby having a fit inside of us, a full-on tantrum. So often we might put up a valiant effort then we give in. And what comes next? Sweet, sweet release, peace and enjoyment and no struggle at all. But then after that, later on, when boss baby isn't having a moment with you, what are your thoughts about what happened? We are all the same here. Regret, beating yourself up, disappointment for not sticking to your goals, feeling weak and powerless. And after we marinate in that for a while, the cycle continues. We want to feel good, and is it any wonder that after a day of flailing ourselves results in us chasing the one sure way to feel good again? Isn't it funny that nobody has to teach us how to do this cycle? Can you just imagine? Okay, here's what you do. After work, you grit your teeth, you take care of the dinner, the homework, the baths, maybe throw some laundry in, then poof, your body will want some relief, and you just throw some apple pie at it. No way. It comes so naturally. I believe that's a good sign that we're dealing with the flesh. The Bible says that our thoughts can be influenced by the flesh, which is fragile and weak, yet resilient and intent on survival. Humans in our natural state live according to the cravings of our flesh to indulge its desires and its thoughts, according to Ephesians 2.3. When boss baby flesh rears its cranky head, you come to understand that no words are off limit to get what it wants. 
if we look at what brought us to the apple pie, the wine, the overwork, at its root are thoughts that were not beneficial, were not helpful, and were not necessary. These can feel so automatic because we live our lives in this flesh. It's all we know. I'd regularly bully myself with so many unhelpful thoughts about everything. And I believed my own voice. Those mean-spirited statements were facts as far as I was concerned. The Bible instructs us to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, that by testing you can understand what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, according to Romans 12, 2-3. Renewal of mind to test in order to understand. That is so profound and wise, straight out of the Bible. So in the past, I'd flat out dismiss renewing my thoughts in these cases. Imagine that, the flesh rejecting what God's word says. Hmm, I wonder why. I tried the self-help affirmations. There were some really good ones, but I just didn't believe them. I believed these other statements like, you always put your foot in your mouth. You're so careless. Get your act together. If you don't have a clean house, you're lazy, pathetic, and trashy. If I'd stop to consider what I was bullying myself about, I'd justify it. Oh, I'm just giving myself fuel to get things done. Gotta use tough love. But what's behind that fuel? Or who? That's not how God does things. There are a number of areas to consider around our thoughts and our heart, which sometimes are terms used interchangeably in the Bible. Let's focus on just a few concepts in this case, and later on we can pull it together with some practical aspects and hopefully helpful tips. There are aspects of our hearts, our emotions that are so wonderful, but it's corrupted by the flesh. As the Bible tells us in the book of Jeremiah in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. And we are so very good and very skilled at deceiving, especially ourselves. Imagine my two-year-old flushing her dad's wallet down the toilet. Her curiosity of the world, exploring how things work, these are very good things, but now the wallet is irretrievable, gone for good, including the cash that was in it that was desperately needed. Even a two-year-old is very trained on the caregiver's reactions and emotions and can frame that wallet flushing in the most favorable terms. Many, many times there would be a lie. Oh no, I didn't do that. Nope, didn't touch dad's wallet. Oh, sister saw me? Nah, she's a liar didn't do it. Deception doesn't need to be taught. Trying to look good, favorable comes very natural. We've been doing that since we were itty bitty. All these coping strategies we have in the flesh may get us through a moment, but we aren't called to survive. We're called to thrive. We have tools available, but are they tools if we don't know how to use them? You might have a table saw in the garage, but having the tool doesn't mean you know how to use it. Even if I watch the video and it doesn't give me courage to use a machine that can tear my limb off. The tool God gives us may seem equally daunting. Be transformed by the renewal of our minds, the Bible says, that by testing you can understand what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 2-3. First, as believers, we have to grapple with the idea that God is in the process of renewing us under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When you pour the glass of wine, you take the first few sips, you can't help but be influenced by it. Some may be influenced with repulsion, 
Yuck, I don't like that. Or some might be influenced with enjoyment. Yeah, gimme, gimme. Cravings take over. After a few sips, it starts to get in your head and influence your mind and your body. As people of faith in God, you become this new person with a renewed mind that's being renewed and is renewed at the same time. You have to want it. It's a desirable thing. You know, the gimme, gimme. At some point, you want to do things just out of love for God. But when your flesh is wrestling with cravings, otherwise known as love of something else, it's not easy. It can help us if we understand the why behind the wrestling. Jesus Christ warns us to watch ourselves. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Luke 21, 34. Carousing isn't a word that we use a lot. It comes from the Greek word krahapoli. Some translations use the word dissipation or surfeiting, which are equally less apparent in their meaning. It refers to dizziness, staggering, clouded thinking, similar effects from excessive alcohol. It describes drunken behavior without moral restraint. It is unbridled indulgence in a drinking party. I understand that phrase better, unbridled indulgence. That makes me think of food too, of entertainment, the desire to pause my life and play on Instagram or TikTok. And and before you know it, hours pass. For some, it may be unbridled indulgence of porn, of sex, anything we may struggle with and feel a drive to indulge in, to soothe ourselves with. Be careful, Jesus Christ warns, be watchful. You will be weighed down by your unbridled indulgence, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. Drunkenness kind of speaks for itself. It's harmful to your body, and the hangover is proof. You can be so addicted to it that you need medication to keep you alive during the DTs of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Drinking alcohol isn't the same as drunkenness. I'm not against alcohol generally today, but I don't recommend it either, and I don't want that life for my adult kids. The other thing Jesus mentions is anxieties of life. Isn't that interesting? If we take Jesus's meaning, he's talking about excesses. And we can ruminate, meditate, marinate in all of our concerns, worries, and strife. Maybe it's a totally innocent thing. My oldest son has autism spectrum disorder. And there were times that helping him in some way to overcome whatever obstacle were all I could think about. I did the internet research and read the books and stocked the chat boards. Yes, it was that long ago. Caring for and helping my son were worthy things. How I could better do that calling, worthy things. Trying to be a savior and fix every obstacle was obsessive and indulgent. It wasn't the what, not even the how. It was what I was making it mean for me, and honestly, was the uncertainty of life of raising a developmentally challenged child. Straight up, I think looking back, I wanted to fix him. It was my personal quest for a holy grail. Now, I would have totally come to blows with this and maybe even hair pooling if you suggested that to me back then. I'm half hood and half holy. Nobody would dare say such a thing, but God revealed that to me in a very gentle way. It's a hard truth, and if we are open to listening from God, He will help us renew our minds. We need that help desperately because we make almost everything about ourselves. Be careful, Jesus Christ warns. Be watchful. 
you will be weighed down by your unbridled indulgence, your drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. Those things will close on you suddenly like a trap. It's interesting how he concludes with, that day will close on you like a trap. That day infers Jesus Christ's eventual return, and he promises to come again and make all things new. But the meaning is not lost if we focus on the things Jesus says weighs us down, that those things close on you suddenly like a trap. Remember earlier I said that in Ephesians, it says our natural state as humans is fulfilling the cravings of our flesh. It sounds logical just follow the cravings, but that life is a life of bondage, blips of pleasure in exchange for a life of slavery to your flesh. Romans 7 talks a lot about the Apostle Paul's struggle with the flesh, how it wages war against him. Even a Catholic saint struggled with the flesh. So does your pastor and his wife, and even the most godly person you can think of. If we go back to Jesus' statement, all of a sudden you realize you're trapped in this state where your heart is weighed down by all the things. Maybe something seems too difficult for us to overcome, like the spot Moses found himself in in the previous episode. So we talk ourselves out of it before we even start. So many people die before they live, lulled into a state of contentedness with ready entertainment from your streaming service. You don't have love or excitement, so there's porn and alcohol and drugs to soothe the unsettled pieces of our lives. I'm not judging, I promise. I'm just stating facts. I've certainly had my own wrestlings with overindulgent behaviors over the years. For me, like I said before, I'd long for the glass of wine at the end of a hard day. I deserve this moment. These kids are driving me crazy. I can't handle it anymore. Mommy wine culture is a thing, so I'm obviously not alone in dealing with this. Boss Baby says, I can't handle this, and I believed her, and I gave in. What about work? Oh, this employee doesn't do this and that right. We have this problem and this manager's angry and upset about it and is being charged for this thing. And, and why can't they just fix it? I have 99 problems, but I know relief is coming at the end of the day, courtesy of a beautiful glass and a beautiful drink. Boss baby wants relief and doesn't mind torturing you to get it. Talk about a paradox right there. I rarely stop to ask the question, why am I trying to escape my life? I'm just on autopilot doing these things in my life in survival mode. Why do I accept a life that all I can hope to do is survive? God gave me this life to thrive, not survive, even in hardships. So what do we do with that? Do we push out more meditation time or check whether the mercury retrograde is hitting us now? What if we looked at the positive side of avoiding this life of bondage, which is wrestling with the flesh helps us understand what is good, acceptable, and perfect? It doesn't sound like a terrible, worthless struggle. How valuable would it be to understand God's will for your life? How valuable to know what is good, acceptable, and perfect for you? Would it help your situation if you prayed using this verse, literally asking the questions and meditating on it? It's a really good one. Romans 12, 2 through 3. One option is to take heed of the warning and just not do the unbridled indulgence, the drunkenness, the indulgent thoughts around anxiety of life. To just stop. 
we may turn that into thinking that God has all these restrictions and lists of things to do or not do. When we see these lists in the Bible, you want to really zone in and understand because this is part of the formula for living a full, abundant life. Jesus Christ said he came that we may have an abundant life. He's telling you exactly how to do it. But most of us do not stop there and follow the formula in obedience to God. We'd rather obey our flesh and do the indulgent thing and wrestle with it later. And then we want to feel good after beating ourselves up, leading us to go and do the thing that boss baby wants in order to feel good again. We're more alike than different, my friends. Most of us find that cycle, that formula doesn't really work for us. You are free to continue it. Some even do it to the grave as stress and addiction and perhaps disease come full circle and take their lives. The cycle is fueled from our flesh with its own thoughts and cravings and desires to indulge, to feel good. We have all these statements, but how do we effectively wrestle with the flesh? What about using that CPR method I detailed a couple episodes ago? Practice confession in your life. The C. God, I have this desire. It's very strong and I really want to give in. Help me understand what's the root of it. Is it my flesh screaming for comfort? Why do I feel like I have to escape my life? What is good and acceptable and perfect for me in this situation? How can I show myself compassion and kindness without giving in? Then you move to P, profession, and then finally R, repentance. I promise I'm preaching to myself here. If you practice that for a couple minutes a day, checking in with yourself on what boss baby is fussing about, would it change things for you? Maybe God is leading you to look at the situation of mind renewal like you're married. When you get married, you don't date other people because you are now in a committed relationship. When you are a new creature in Christ, you don't do this thing anymore, whatever it is, because I have a new identity as a married person. If you are a marathon runner or training for the Ironman race like my uncle has several times, you probably don't binge eat Oreos and chips on the sofa most nights. You have a new identity of creating the best circumstances with your body for peak performance through nutrition and exercise. The sacrifices are desirable, helpful, needed. The Apostle Paul and his friends spread the message of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire. Paul said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one received the prize? So run that you may obtain it. I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27. So would it help to look at boss baby in the context of a marriage or a competition? Compete. Don't give in. Don't give up. Train your mind, your body for peak performance. Marathons don't ignite me. I guess I'm more of an indoorsy person than I'd like to admit. It sounds exhausting. But since I've been married for 28 years, I can understand and apply my limited vision of my life. I'm giving up other relationships with interesting and handsome men because I have an interesting and handsome man at home. And he loves me knowing all my secrets, all my insecurities, and he loves my figure just the way it is. I'm giving something up for something better. I can use that understanding to help me teach my boss baby that she isn't getting whatever she wants. She can scream in the middle of the grocery store, but I will not be caving into her demands. I will observe her in action and observe the lengths she will go to get what she wants. Wow, 
desperate much? I love you, boss baby. You will survive this. And she will. You will too. You will probably mess up at some point. Thank goodness managing boss baby isn't exactly like being married and I violate my husband's trust when I fail. What do you do when you mess up? When I give in to my flesh screaming for a glass of wine or whatever you struggle with. Let's look at what Jesus did when people had surrounded a woman caught in adultery, accusing her, seeking to punish her. She did that act all alone, right? Not exactly but she's alone in punishment. Jesus said to her very simply, go and sin no more. Basically, pick yourself up. Stop looking back. Look at what you're doing now. Grace, simple and amazing grace. Extend that grace to yourself and you're more equipped to extend it to others. We all mess up, sometimes big time, but amazing grace is waiting there for you, inviting you to try again to work on renewing the mind. I hope you will try something new to manage your boss, baby. I find that with the wisdom of the Bible makes so much sense in managing these crazy passions in my life. Those passions may seem innocent at first, but our drive to torture ourselves into complying with boss baby's demands tells a different story. God has an amazing plan for your life and wants to help you get off the seesaw of indulging your flesh so that you can live in your purpose to produce much fruit in your life. The anti-self-help life invites you to look to God, look to his instruction and his job manual for mankind to live the best life, a life of peace and passion and purpose far beyond our limited view of what life can be. I am on a lifelong journey of contentedness, and I think we can all learn something more about it. Join me next time as we come to understand how the wisdom of the Bible can help us in our everyday life, in our families, our businesses, and our communities. It's an adventure of a lifetime. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and post about it on your social media. And please leave a rating and a review. To catch the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at AOA Lifetime. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Music title Soul Walking by Juanitos, used by the Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.